Open your Bibles with me, if you would, to the book of Romans, chapter 7. I've been in this uh, particular chapter for a couple of weeks, and um, what we're going to be looking at today is the conflict within, the fact, the reality that as we grow in the Lord, there is a growing conflict within. We're talking about sanctification to be set apart, and as we, by the power of God's Holy Spirit, are being set apart, being sanctified. We have been declared holy at the moment of our salvation. We are being made holy as we move along. There is conflict inside. We're going we're gonna to look at what drives that and what the resolution to it is this morning. Because Romans chapter 7, is, it's one of the most critical chapters in the Bible, uh, it's, it's one that we want to study. We want to understand it because it lays the groundwork for just what it is to be a Christian, what the, the, the transactions are, what the inner workings are, and, and it illustrates the struggle that each of us has. It's a struggle that we have with sin, where we, before Christ, were really surrendered to the old nature, that nature of sin. Now in Christ... We've looked at the fact that God didn't get rid of that old nature. He rendered inoperative and functionally so, but that's not often the case. And we struggle, we wrestle. So my point, I guess, is, is that if you get the book of Romans, it'll be a tremendous help to you in your walk with Christ in a number of different ways. So Paul began this chapter with an illustration of marriage, if you remember, if you were with us. And our relationship to the law, remember he talked about the woman who had a husband and uh, she, her husband died and she was freed from being bound to her husband. And in the same way that we uh, are outside of Christ, are subject to the law, but having died with Christ, that we are no longer bound to the law, we're bound to Christ. And and he goes into this whole deal there. We're not going to go through it again, but he talks about essentially why we cannot be sanctified by law, why we are not cleansed by the law. The law doesn't have any power to do that. It illustrates man's sinfulness, but there is it, 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 there's nothing there beyond that to benefit man. Uh, Israel, remember, they had the law of Moses, the ceremonial law. Uh, earlier in this book, in Romans, Paul talks about the Gentiles being a law unto themselves. We've talked about the law of our conscience that, frankly, is fallen, and often because we can rationalize just about anything, and uh, none of that uh, can deal with this inner conflict that we have. It, it, the one problem that the law brings is that we can't keep it. We cannot keep a list of rules. <laughs> We're going to talk about that. There get some good examples of that this morning. But the result, truly, in our lives is that we can walk around under guilt and shame and condemnation and defeat. And that is not God's will for us. That is not his will for us to just buckle under the weight of sin. He's already paid the price for it. He wants us to live fruitful lives, abundant lives. How do we do that? Part of it is understanding what he has to say here, a big part. So 
We're going to look at verses 14 through the end of the chapter here in in Romans today. And I want to read through the passage from 14 to 25. And then we'll come back, unpack it, and take a look at some of the things that Paul is saying. This is, I look at this passage as sort of the Lombard Street. If you guys are familiar with San Francisco, and I used to live there, uh, there's a street there called Lombard Street. It's like the, the twistiest, curviest street in the world. This is Lombard Street, <laughs> and so bear with me, uh, because this, there's a lot of twists and turns here, and yet it, it, when you understand, when you sort of back up, the way I like to teach is I call it zoom out, zoom in. When you zoom out and you look at the whole thing, it makes perfect sense. When you zoom in and you start trying to take this one verse at a time, you end up scratching your head going, what on earth is he trying to say? So, verse 14 He says, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. That's where we left off last time. But it actually connects what he had previously said about the flesh. Remember, we looked at the flesh last week. And and now with what he's he's going to go into a practical sort of an illustration of, of, of what the mechanisms are inside internally that affect us. He says, for what I'm doing in verse 15, I don't understand. For what I will to do that I do not practice, but what I hate that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now, and this is a pivotal, verse 17 is really pivotal in our understanding, but now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good, I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Confused yet? (laughs) Verse 21, I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He just spirals down in this. In verse 25, looks looks up. He says, I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then with my the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. So verse 18 tells us, he says, in me, no good thing dwells. He's talking about the flesh. We looked at that last week. Uh, and, and for believers, we refer to the flesh as the old nature, the sin nature, the nature of Adam, the natural man. There are different words that are used in God's word that refer to the nature that we lived by prior to coming to Christ. In verse 14, he says, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. Now, I want to make a distinction, and you'll understand it as we go along. What he's saying here is he is not serving his carnal nature, his lower nature. That's the whole point of this passage. But he is definitely describing his condition. And so understand that distinction. It'll make more sense to you as we go. He's saying, I'm the problem. The law isn't the problem. I am. That, that law of sin, that I'm carnal, sold under sin. I'm in bondage under sin, and the law can't help me out. 
Think about it. It's like if a man was arrested for a crime and now he's on trial sitting in the courtroom, the law uh, is only going to help him if he's innocent. And that makes sense. But Paul knows that he is guilty and that the law argues against him and not for him. You know, one of the principles, it's it's a universal principle uh, that we look at. It's called cause and effect. All right, so we're looking at the effect this morning is that there's inner turmoil, there's inner conflict in our lives, in our hearts as Christians. I want to look at three different types of people that are outlined in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and 3 uh, and then talk about them. But then I want to add something there. So what we look at here is the Bible presents three different types. We look at the natural man. The first is the natural man. In 1 Corinthians 2, 14 and 15, the Apostle Paul says, but the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. So the natural man is what we all were prior to coming to Christ. Why? Because we are sinners by nature. That's why he calls it the natural man. That's our nature. We serve the flesh and that's it. There is no spiritual nature there. In Ephesians chapter two, the apostle Paul says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God, I love that, but God in that passage. So that's the natural man, the unregenerate man, the one who has no spiritual life. The second thing that we look at in in, in 1 Corinthians 2, in verse 15, he says, He who is spiritual judges, judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. So we're talking about the spiritual man. And so the spiritual man is the one who's saved and who walks in the power of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to, believe me, when we get into Romans chapter 8, we're going to slow it down a bit. Like you guys know that I don't go real fast anyway, but we're going to slow it down a bit because as we look at Romans chapter eight, we are going to just take a great in-depth look at the spiritual man, at life in the Holy Spirit, at the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So stay tuned for that. So we have the natural man, the spiritual man, and then we have what is called the carnal man. Now, and remember in Verse 14, Paul says, I am carnal, sold into bondage and sin. So he's describing his the state that he's in, not that he's serving it. The carnal man in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 is somebody that's serving the flesh. In, in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 1 through 3, Paul says, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as a spiritual as spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. He's talking about immature believers. I fed you with milk and not with solid food for until now you are not able to receive it. And even now you are still not able for you are carnal. For where there is envy, strife, divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? So the natural man, the spiritual man, now the carnal man is somebody that's born again of God's spirit. But he lives in the energy of his flesh. He lives according to the dictates of that lower nature, that old nature. So the carnal man can appear to be pious. He can appear to be spiritual outwardly, but he'll be perpetually frustrated. I'll tell you what, folks. It's like trying to live your life with one foot on a pier and one foot in a boat. 
you're, you know, that transitional point where you've got one foot in there and that thing is just kind of doing that and you're still on solid ground here. It, that's the life of a carnal man or a carnal woman. Carnality in the body of Christ is a real thing. Uh, and, and we're told, God's word tells us that that person will be unstable in all their ways. This is the man seen in James chapter 1. Uh, where James says, be doers of the word and not hearers, only deceiving yourselves. The carnal man is deceived, self-deceived. For if anyone's a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. So he sees that natural man trying to express himself. He is a believer. He is saved. But he's frustrated. He's in that place of trying to live in both worlds. And it will never work. It will produce heartache. It will produce misery. It will produce condemnation. And it's just a bad deal. It's a tough place. So to summarize, these three kinds of people, they're they're provable from God's word and they apply. I mean, that's just part of what we're looking at. But I want to introduce a fourth option here as relates to Romans chapter 7. So is Paul, is he the natural man as he writes this? We've talked about that. I do not believe that this is before he was saved. There is way too much here. I I wrapped up last week's message with a whole list of things that he expresses that only a redeemed, only a Christian would say. So it's not the natural man expressing himself here. This cause and effect you know, so the effect is that there's an inner turmoil, an inner conflict, but what's the cause? It's not the natural man. It's not the spiritual man. Yeah, we are saved, we're born again, but if we were to live in a perfect world, we wouldn't wrestle, would we? So, therefore, it's not the spiritual man, it's not the carnal man. I don't believe that Paul is, when he's expressing his own heart in this passage, that, that he's expressing it as an immature believer. I mean, this is the Apostle Paul. I believe, truly, folks, that he is expressing the condition that all of us face. Here's the fourth option. This is a mature or a maturing Christian whose consciousness of and struggle against sin actually increases as they grow, as they mature. I don't know about you, but sin in my life, I see far more clearly than I did 20 years ago. I I understand that that wrestle, that struggle is going to be there. What do I do with it? How do I deal with it? That's what Paul is talking about here. That as we mature, as we grow, uh, according to Scripture, it's the maturing believer who's more deeply concerned about their sin. There's a principle in this. The more a person has progressed in their own sanctification, that's what we're talking about here, being set apart, the more we have progressed in that, the more they will be dreadfully aware of their own sinfulness. (laughs) There are times where the Lord has me live the message before I give it. And just looking at this, I remember a couple of weeks ago, I was sharing about how God has just done such a tremendous work in my temper. And he has, because as a young man, I had a horrible temper. And and yeah, it doesn't express itself that way. But it's like all this week, I kept having these things get laid in front of me that were really temptations to get ticked off about something or at someone. And, and, And it was like, 
Oh, Lord, deliver me from this body of this death, like he says here. Because it's like, we all deal with this. And, and if you're willing to be real, if you're willing to, to be transparent with yourself, you'll see. And, and honest self-examination is not easy at times. But we all wrestle. We all wrestle with sin. That doesn't mean that you're carnal. If you're wrestling, that's a good thing. If you've caved into it, that's another thing altogether. But if you're wrestling, if you're struggling, if there's a conflict within and you're, you're seeing your own sinfulness, that's, that's something that I think is, it's really good. It, the symptoms of that, it's sort of like being physically sick. If, when you begin to get sick, you know, that first notice that your throat kind of cleared out or that you're starting to cough or whatever, there are symptoms. Spiritual illness is the same way. There are symptoms. You become very uneasy with yourself. You maybe become very uneasy with the fact that you are actually engaged in sin, one form or another. And God, by his Holy Spirit, is faithful to draw our attention to that. There's a transparency that follows in, in, in the, the, these verses that, that will, if we're willing to look within, willing to be honest with ourselves, will resonate deeply with each one of us. Verse 15. He says, for what I'm doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice, but what I hate, that I do. What's he saying? Let's be really practical about this. Have you ever been on a diet? I have. Let's change up the wording here. He says, for what I'm eating, (laughs) I don't understand. For what I will to eat, that I do not eat. But what I hate to eat, that I eat. That is, I'll tell you what, that's why Weight Watchers didn't ever go out of business and they're still throwing it out there because it plays on this aspect of our nature. And yeah, that's kind of an innocent one. I mean, it's serious for guys like me. But the point is, is that that's that's the mechanism inside. We were having dinner with some friends a couple of weeks ago and I became very aware of this principle because I realized because my wife was late and she was running late, had some stuff going. And I was just sitting there eating bread. <laughs> and my friend said, man, you like butter. <laughs> and I, I felt embarrassed for him, but he, he's a good friend. So I, I didn't, it wasn't like worried about it. And I just looked at him and said, yeah, I, I kind of like to frost my bread. <laughs> that nature, and I make fun of it, but... That's my lower nature, engaged in things. I know I shouldn't be doing that. I mean, I have some medical things going on that that is just poison to me. And yet I do that which I don't want to do. I don't do that which I want to do. In Second Peter 1, Peter speaks of our being partakers of the divine nature, the nature of spirit. What he's talking about is the fact that we as believers are filled with the Holy Spirit that we are the embodiment, the representation of, of God on this earth is the church. It is us, that we have the divine nature within. And that that having the Holy Spirit is that that's the new nature that we have coming to Christ. He says, I've rendered that old nature inoperative, but now you have a new nature, the nature of spirit, the very spirit of God. Contrasted to that in Galatians 5.17, we see that the flesh, talked about that last week, that it lusts against the spirit inside and the spirit against the flesh. And these two are contrary to one another. 
So what he's saying, the point in that is as redeemed people, we now have two very real, very opposed, very contrary natures within us. And that's the light within which we want to work through this passage because Paul is clearly bouncing from one side to the other, looking at the old nature, that nature of sin, and the new nature, the nature of spirit. The lie here, folks, and I want you to be clear going in, is that these two natures are equal. They're not equal. The sin nature within us behaves like a cornered animal because the spirit nature, the nature of God within us, has the power. Uh, I always go back to Jesus with the men in the Garden of Gethsemane when he said, hey, watch and pray. And he goes back several times and they keep falling asleep. And he says there, he says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Verse 16, he says, if then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that the law is good. So he's taking sides with the law against himself here (laughs) in committing acts which he himself condemns. Let me give you an example. Let's say that you climbed upon a roof and you tied a cape around your neck. I can just picture some of you with a cape around your neck on the roof. And then you jumped off of the roof. <laughs> Connie's going, no. <laughs> then you jumped off of the roof in hopes of breaking the law of gravity. Okay. Very quickly, you'd learn that you can't fly. And you'd learn that you cannot break the law of gravity. And the only thing you break in the end is your own neck. That is yourself. The point In doing that, you're proving, you're agreeing with the law of gravity in attempting to defy it. That's what Paul is saying. I, 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 I approve the law of God, and when I'm doing things wrong, I actually prove that it's right. But it doesn't have an effect on me on how to do it right. He says in verse 17, but now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I told you that's a pivotal verse. Because here, we see the two natures in conflict. Paul uses the word I to represent the new man. He uses the term sin that dwells in me to represent the old man or the nature of sin. That's the conflict. Now, I want to be real clear. What this is not saying is that we get a pass with regard to indwelling sin. He's talking about indwelling sin that dwells within me. He is not saying, oh, that's okay. You look at Jesus with the woman caught in adultery. He never said, oh, that's okay. He said, I don't condemn you. But he also said, go and leave your life of sin. Because it's sin. We don't get a pass. It's what Jesus died for. It's a serious deal. And we can't make light of it or or use that as a, a way to cop out. Well, it's just, you know, this indwelling sin. I have nothing. I can't help it. Oh, no, you can. We have a free will. We're responsible for the choices that we make. But let me tell you what's going on here. Paul is tracking down the source of all our sinful behavior, but he's not excusing it. He's exposing it, but not excusing it. Verse 18, he says, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good, I do not find. He says, in my flesh, that's the principle of sin. That expresses itself through one's mind and body. That's what the flesh does. In simple terms, what Paul is saying here is he's saying, I have a desire to do what's good, but I I lack the ability to carry it out. I don't know how to do this. 
Because uh, as he has already said, I, I do the things I don't want to do. I don't do the things I do want to do. And, and I'll tell you what, if you live in that place, that's where the frustration comes. Because you're, it, it, it's, it's just going to keep you perpetually frustrated. Good news is coming. So as the apostle here, he spirals down, he hits on two great lessons that all of us must learn. And, and folks, take this to heart. These are some core truths in understanding the gospel. The first is there is no good thing in any of us. He doesn't say, I know that in me not much good dwells. He says, nothing good dwells in my flesh. Understand that. You know, I I love that term, putting lipstick on a pig. (laughs) You try to dress up your flesh. You, know, you want to do good deeds. You want to do all the stuff. But if your heart is not fundamentally changed, you're putting lipstick on a pig. And I'm not calling you a pig any more than I am me, but it's true. The second thing he says here is we don't have the ability to do the good we will to do in our own strength. It's not possible. We'll see in Romans chapter 8 that it is impossible it, it is literally not possible in the flesh to please God. So the point here, again, backing up, looking at, we're looking at sanctification, what it is to be declared holy at our new birth, but to be made holy as we walk with the Lord, backing up, we will never be able to sanctify ourselves. We're utterly dependent on the Holy Spirit as the only source of power in our lives. Verse 19, he says, for the good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Here's the conflict between the two natures, and it rages on. Uh, Yeah, he's being repetitive here, but I think that that is for emphasis. He's not wasting words. He's saying, look, you got to understand the conflict between these two natures. you got to understand that I fail. He's saying, I fail to do the good that I want to do. Instead, I, I, I do the opposite, that which I despise. Now, I want to say something here, and I want to say it in the right light, because I understand what's being expressed when somebody says, you know, I'm trying to be a good Christian. I've talked about this before. But this is the story of the person who's trying to be a better Christian. Again, I understand the sentiment. I agree with it in ways. C.S. Lewis said this. He he said, no man knows how bad he is until he has tried to be good. (laughs) I like that. So if I'm trying, just give you an example. If I'm trying to get to Seattle, I am confessing to you I am not in Seattle. (laughs) I'm trying to get there. And so if I'm trying to lead a sanctified life in my own power in the flesh, I'm not there. And I will never get there on my own. I am utterly dependent upon God to do that work in me. And there's a place where I yield to that, or we'll get to that as we go. I want to also emphasize these are not the words of a defeated man. He's not defeated when he's saying this. He's being real. I love this passage because here the great apostle Paul is simply being real. He's saying, you know what? I struggle. You know what? Man, I see that sin in me and it it drives me nuts at times. And there's this conflict, this tearing inside that I don't like, but it's there. And I want you to know that that that's the condition that I'm in. Why? Because I'm growing. Because my understanding of Christ is deepening. 
Because my life is, is, is being impacted by the power of the Holy Spirit and by the power of the gospel. And folks, take heart. This is not the words of a defeated man. They're not the words of a compromised man. He's not the guy talked about in 1 Corinthians where he says, you know what? You're, you're like babes. These are the words of a humbled man who sees that he's not there. I take such great comfort from that, from seeing that I'm not alone in this struggle. I'm seeing that as I go through my day-to-day life, yeah, I can come here. And and again, I love you guys and I love being with you and having fellowship with you. And out there, when I get out there, man, it gets hard. And there are things that compete for our affections. There are things that compete for the upper place in my heart. And my flesh is right there to try to get to jump on the throne of my heart. And the Holy Spirit says, no. That's a place that's reserved for me. You need to yield to me, not to your flesh. So these are the words of a humbled man who sees himself accurately. He sees that he's not there. He's growing in his relationship with Christ, just like you and I. He's describing his own struggle, the inner conflict that he has with sin. And we'll see in chapter 8 that it's not about trying. Uh, Again, I want to emphasize that. Because a popular thing with my flesh, we've talked about it a few times. It's like, no, it's not, it's not about the self-help seminar. It's about being. Chapter eight, being filled with the spirit. Chapter seven, trying to do battle with sin. Verse 20, he says, now if I do what I will not to do, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Are you beginning to see that repetitiously here, he is drawing a contrast between the old man and the new man, between the natural man, the carnal man, and the spiritual man. He's saying we have both of these natures within. Yes, the flesh is our lower nature, and it tries to express itself. I was thinking about that the other night as I was preparing for this. I I was thinking, man, you need, John, you need to keep that dog on a chain. Because I'll tell you what, it's there. And somebody says something, you know, foul to me. What's the temptation? To get mad, to, to react instead of respond. Somebody cuts me off on the road. The the temptation is, you know, and, and it's there. That lives in us. But we don't need to obey its lusts, the Bible tells us. Paul understood that he was a new creation in Christ. And as Peter states, that he had become a partaker of the divine nature. He says, no longer I, that's the new man, the new nature, but sin dwelling within me, the old man, the sin nature. That's the conflict. That's the nature of it. That's the effect. Interesting. I was looking through the book of Romans and I mean, it, in the beginning of the book of Romans, the first three chapters, chapter one, verse 18 or so to chapter three, verse 20 is all about the sinfulness of man. And then he goes, I mean, Romans really clearly shows humanity's sin, doesn't it? There is no mention of Satan until you get to chapter 16, the end of the book. Why? Because we can't blame Satan for indwelling sin. We always have a choice. It will never be, nor is it, the devil made me do it. Yeah, the first thing that happens to me when I sin is I want to rationalize it. I want to, I want to blame shift. That's what Eve did in the garden. What Adam did. I mean, when God confronted me, he says, well, it says, woman, you gave me. Yeah. You know, but no, 
This is a place where we take responsibility and we confront that sin and we take it, we hold it up before the light of the gospel. You know, it's interesting because the power of the gospel in our lives is that we're taken from dependence upon self to dependence upon God. The effect of sin in our lives is to draw us right back to dependence upon self. When I am doing business with the Lord, there are many times where the Lord will just kind of address with me. John, do you realize how many times I and me have come up in your lament to me? Do you see the nature of your own heart? I've shared with you guys that one of the things that happens to me is in the grocery store line and somebody is just taking their time. And I'm like, oh my goodness, you couldn't have gotten your checkbook out before? And, oh, you want to fill in the register and all of those things? I mean, for me, I, more than once, the Lord has said, I just wanted to show you your heart, John. Because I'm sitting there thinking, come on. And as God speaks to me, I'm able to let it go and to have patience because that's part of the fruit of his spirit. That's just one example. We go through these things. So our sin nature, remember, it's it's not destroyed. It's not removed. As I mentioned, it's potentially rendered inoperative. Like I said, you had to keep that dog on a chain because if I allow myself to live in that place, now I'm carnal. Now I'm living life in both worlds. Now I am trying to live the life of spirit by the Holy Spirit within. And I'm trying to live the life of flesh because actually I've got a lot of experience in that. Verse 21, he says, I find then a law. Now this isn't the law of Moses. He's talking about a a principle or a rule. He says, I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. So Paul's describing uh, this principle. He's saying, I see the evil in my own heart. I want you to notice, he's saying, I see it. I also notice, he said, he doesn't say, I'm feeding on it. There's a difference. In verse 22, he says, for I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. So the word law here, it's used in a large sense. It's not necessarily just specifically referring to the law of Moses. He's talking about all that God has communicated to man. Delighting it is the inclination of the regenerated man or woman, the inclination of our hearts. The sense here is that Paul loves God's word. I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. Now, the inward man is a personification of that which sets us apart as Christians. That's simply, I'm not trying to read too much into it. He's saying when he talks about the inward man, it's synonymous with uh, what he says in, in the following verse. We'll get to that. I got ahead of myself. So he says in verse 23, he says, but I see another law in my members. Members means body parts. Okay. Uh, I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. What on earth is he talking about there? When he talks about warring, he's talking about resisting, fighting against this thing. He's talking about that conflict is actually a struggle. It's actually a, a conflict that is set up that I am fighting in my own heart. When he talks about the law of my mind, it's synonymous with what 
he talks about with the inward man, as I mentioned a moment ago in verse 22. Folks, this is the battle. This is it. This is the battle. The law in my members, my flesh, and the law of my mind, the spirit. That is the battle. Again, if you look at this, you come back, you look at it in so many ways. He is saying, look, there are two natures that dwell within you. There is the new nature, the nature of spirit. And there is the old nature, the nature of flesh. And they are absolutely contrary. They are absolutely opposed to one another. That's why the conflict exists. In Isaiah 59, Isaiah says this. He says, for your hands are defiled with blood, your fingers with iniquity, your lips have spoken lies, your tongue has muttered perversity. In in verse 7 of chapter 59, he says, their feet run to evil. Question. Have your eyes ever wandered into lust? Perhaps not sexual lust. I mean, that's what we think of pretty significantly because it's true. But but perhaps towards some material thing. Uh, Even the commercial with the big shiny new car that you can't afford. (laughs) Have you ever wanted to hear that tantalizing tidbit about a mutual friend? Let me tell you something. Don't tell anybody, but... Have you ever engaged in gossip because you have some juicy inside info, info on somebody? I, I, I could just go on. I think you get my drift. All of this is connected to the law of sin, which is in my members. That's how we sin. We sin with our body. So the question becomes then, what is the remedy to all of this? I mean, he's really, I mean, if we stopped there, we would walk out of here. I would walk out of here being pretty bummed out. Like, man, there's this conflict and that's it. He doesn't leave us there. So what's the remedy? Self-help? Talked about that. No. Try harder? No. Read some books? A lot of good books out there? No. Go to some seminars? I don't think so. Go see a shrink? Probably not. None of these. The answer is rescue. The answer to all of this is I need rescue. Verse 24. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me, rescue me from this body of death? So when he says wretched man, folks, this is a strong lament. He is, I mean, that's where we get the words to the, to amazing grace. Uh, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. It's derived right from here in Romans 7. He's lamenting over this inner conflict. He, he's saying, you know, man, I, I just, I don't do the things I want to do. I do the things I don't want to do with the law of my mind. I just serve God with the law of my flesh. I just thought there's all this screwed up stuff. And it's just like, man, it's like getting lost in a maze. But he doesn't leave us there, nor does God leave us there. Who will deliver me? from the body of this death. The word wretched here means miserable, distressed, or pathetic. The hopelessness of Paul's condition is dismal. He can affect no remedy to it on his own. Who will deliver me? The Greek word for deliver is purumai. It means to rescue from danger with the implication that the danger in question is severe and acute. So what he's saying is, who will rescue me? Who will deliver me 
from this situation that is severe and acute. I'm in trouble. That's what he's saying. I'm in trouble. I, you know, I've got this thing going on inside and I don't know what to do with it. Under the inspiration of the Spirit, he points the way. We see this division inside of Paul illustrated. This, the body of death is clearly a reference to his flesh. And who will deliver me, he says. Verse 25. He says, I thank God. I love how this is like it just spirals down. And it's like right here at the end of chapter 7, it just he just turns it around. And on we go. It's glorious. He says, I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God. But with the flesh, the law of sin. Praise God. If you belong to Jesus, you're not wanting to be rescued. You have been rescued. Praise the Lord. We don't live there. We identify the conflict and then we hold it up to him. And he says, yeah, I'm the one who rescued you from all of that. It's about the cross of Christ. He's rescued us not just from the conflict here, but rescued us. And now we get to go to heaven. Been rescued from the law of sin and death to a fruitful life here in the meantime. Life in the spirit. That's Romans chapter 8. We're going to dive into next week. We're going to do a deep dive into Romans chapter 8. In closing though, I I just want to... Um, it's the first close. You guys know. It's three or four times. <laughs> I want to look at Matthew chapter 5 as we wrap up. And in it, Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount. Very famous sermon. Perhaps one of the greatest messages that he gave. Uh, and I look at that sort of in the Olivet Discourse, which is another great sermon that he did. Uh, they sort of compete for which one was... Cool. It probably depends on more on where I'm studying. But in, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 6, Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount with these words. And I want you to catch the parallels to what we're talking about this morning. He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. There's a progression here, folks. To be poor in spirit is to come to see one's own spiritual impotence before God. That's what Paul is looking at as he is reflecting these things in Romans chapter 7. He sees his own bankruptcy in his flesh. There's no way. To be broken at the realization of one's own sinful heart is to mourn. And that's what's indicated. That's what, this is in context what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about there the same thing that Paul is talking about here. To be broken over sin, over seeing my own sinful heart is to mourn. And folks, I truly believe that that fourth person, that one who is a a growing, maturing believer, that sin becomes more and more pronounced because the contrast is greater as I grow in my life. To be broken over sin is a good thing. It's to mourn my own condition. And to respond in meekness, he says here, blessed are the meek. 
That's humility. That's the opposite of arrogance. That's what he's saying here is that the arrogant man might see his own sinfulness. He might feel bad about it, but he's going to say, well, that's just who I am. That's just the way it is. Yeah, well, yeah, so what? Like it or leave it. You know, that's the attitude. That's that's an arrogant attitude about these things. And no, Jesus is saying, like Paul, I don't do the things I want. I I do the things I'm just frustrated. Responding in meekness, in humility, as God puts his finger on areas of our hearts. Folks, I encourage you, apply God's word to your life this morning. It is life transforming. And I don't say that for any other reason, that this is the word of God and it's true and it applies. And he says, who will deliver me? That's meekness. Meekness is seeing myself as I truly am and is the only right response to seeing one's own sin and being broken at the realization of it. He says, blessed are you and you hunger and thirst for righteousness. This is visceral. This is deep within. I don't like what I see in my own sinful heart. God, I need your righteousness. I need you. I can't do this myself. And and for me as a man, I mean, I want to be the guy that does it myself. I mean, I want to be the guy that pulls it off. And I battle with that because there has to be a place of humility where I come on my knees before the Lord and I say, God, I can't do this. You've got to work in me. If you don't work in me, I'm not going to be changed. My life isn't going to be transformed. But I know you will. Interesting, each of these that Jesus says includes a promise. Let's look at the last one. He says, they shall be filled. Note, the promise is external. It doesn't say they shall fill themselves. They shall be filled. That's part of why These are called Beatitudes. That's what we're looking at here in Matthew. They're called the Beatitudes. They're not called the do-attitudes. Get that clear. But these are conditions of the human heart. It's a condition of my heart to see my sinfulness, to see that, that dog that needs to be chained, to see that thing in me that rebels against God, that rebels against authority, that rebels against my wife, that rebels against that person that bugs me, or whatever it is. Fill in the blank. Your mileage might vary, but I'll guarantee it's there. He says they shall be filled. Next week, we're going to be looking at, we're going to begin looking at what it is to be filled with the Spirit of God. We're going to begin looking at what it is to experience life in the Holy Spirit, life controlled by God. What a marvelous passage. I have told you guys before that if you look at the New Testament as a mountain range, Romans is the highest mountain Romans 8 is the top of the mountain. It's the peak. And there is so much richness here. There is so much that we can glean from, so much that God, by his Holy Spirit, will drive into our hearts. So I'm looking forward to that. So as we wrap up, what about the person that doesn't know Christ, that doesn't have a functioning relationship with him? I I, I make that distinction because... There are times where people say, well, yeah, I believe in God. It's not enough. Yeah, we're saved by faith through grace or by grace through faith alone. And yet mental assent is not what he's talking about when he's talking about faith. He's talking about a person who has by faith come and said, Jesus, I need you. I trust you. I believe you did the work 
to purchase my soul on that cross. And I believe that the proof of that in your resurrection is the only way that I can live with any kind of power in my life. If you've not done that, perhaps you're here, perhaps you're looking and watching us online. Do it today. Don't live another minute under the power of the natural man, the natural woman. Don't live another minute. If you're compromised this morning and you see that you've been living a life of carnality, yeah, we will wrestle. I'm not saying that that means that you're off, that you're out there. But as long as that wrestling is going on, that's a good thing. But if you surrender to the flesh and you're a Christian, recommit your life to Christ. Give him your heart in a fresh, new way. The Bible tells us that if we come to him in humility, seeing our sinfulness and ask him to forgive us, that he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you want to step into his kingdom today, it's a simple prayer that says something like, God, I've been living my life away from you. I see in this passage clearly that I've not lived for you. Please forgive me. Forgive me for my sins and receive me into your kingdom. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. He'll do it. As I mentioned next week, we're going to look at what it is to be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. The same God. You, you open, you open your Bible to the first page and you see where it says the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. That's the same one that comes and takes up residence in you and in me. That's remarkable. Let's pray. Father, oh, these beautiful truths here in your word, we're we're beyond grateful for. We're so thankful, Lord, that, that your word illustrates, illuminates these things in our hearts. And Lord, I pray simply for hope for each one here who identifies with the things that are spoken from your word this morning, that we would continue to fight the good fight that we would be encouraged, Lord, not discouraged because we see this conflict, but that we'd be encouraged by the fact that the conflict conflict exists and we're growing. I pray, Father, for anyone here who perhaps is under conviction, having caved into sin, having begun to serve the lower nature as a Christian, that your conviction would be deep, Lord, not condemning, as we'll look at next week, but conviction that we would will in our own hearts to embrace you, to turn from that which is stumbling us, which is hindering us. Pray for those who are perhaps receiving you for the first time, that you would take these words as a great encouragement to see that we're all in this boat together and this boat is headed towards heaven. In the meantime, we live in a sinful world and we live, Lord, with that lower nature, that sinful heart that rears up. Let that be an encouragement, Lord. We know Paul wasn't broken over it. We praise you for the deliverance. We praise you for the rescue. And that we don't have to live our lives in light of these things. We live our lives in light of the working of your Holy Spirit dwelling within. I just thank you, Lord, this morning for all that you're doing and that which you're yet to do. We give ourselves afresh to you.